Well, welcome back, folks. Good to see you. If you're online again, a really warm welcome to you or in our courtyard. Great that you're worshiping with us today. We're going to dig into God's Word together. This is the last in our series on I Struggle With. Next week, we're going to begin a mini Bible study series. We're going to look at the book of Philemon next week. When was the last time you read Philemon? So we're going to look at that next week together. Um, But this week, we're going to end our series on looking at how we grow in the core practices of our faith in following Jesus in some of the areas that we struggle. So we looked very early on about hearing God's voice. I struggle to hear God's voice. Henry Cloud came to speak about, I struggle to have difficult conversations. You know what? The community, the family of God is all about loving difficult conversations because we're a family. And then last week and this week, we're looking at the topic of I struggle with worship. Worship is the great gift that God gives us, that we can gather together, and last week we saw we gather together to form ourselves around Jesus. Worship is counterformation because all week we are in a world which are calling us, is calling us to worship other things, and we arrive on Sunday kind of bent out of shape, and worship forms us, counterforms us to the forces that we live in six days of the week. And then secondly, worship is intimacy, relationship with God. It's where we enjoy his presence. But I don't, I don't know about you, but how often do you think, man, I'm, I'm just not into this worship thing as much as other people. You look at other people and go, they seem to really be into it, but I guess it's just not me. It's kind of like prayer, isn't it? I'm sure that's how the disciples thought, kind of thought. When they looked at Jesus praying, and they thought, golly, he, his prayer is different to mine. And so they said to Jesus, Jesus, teach us to pray. Well, it's the same thing with worship. Teach us to worship, because worship is the great gift of God to form ourselves around him and to enjoy his presence. So this week specifically, we're looking at how to worship, how to go on that journey, whether this journey is new to you or whether you've been worshiping a long time, how to grow in worship, to form your life around Christ and to enjoy his presence. We're going to look again at Psalm 95, which is a roadmap from King David on how to worship. Bit of background before we read Psalm 95. It's one of the psalms called the enthronement psalms, which were psalms that were created, this one particularly by King David, that when Israelites gathered together at the festivals and feasts that marked their annual calendar, that they would sing this psalm. This is one of the key worship songs of their gatherings when they used to gather together for their feasts and festivals. You know that God gave Israel a calendar. They lived thousands of miles away from each other, but on regular occasions, they had to come together in Jerusalem for a big festival. And Psalm 95 is one of those psalms that was sung at these festivals. And it's a roadmap of not only why we worship, but how to worship. So if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Psalm 95, and we're going to begin in verse 1. If you don't have your Bibles, it's on the screen for you, for you to follow along. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. And in the mountain and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. 
Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if you would only hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Let's pray together as we dig into God's word. So, Father, as we come to you, we pray that you would soften our hearts and that you would feed our hungry hearts to know how to grow in worship. You gave us a whole book, the Psalter, the Psalms, that we might worship. And yet, Lord, there seems to be so many obstacles, challenges, traditions, cultures that get in the way of a heartfelt abandonment of worship to you. So we offer our hearts to you now to teach us, to grow us, and to lead us into a people who bring a sacrifice of worship. In your name we pray. Amen. I'm look at four words that flow through the logic of this psalm in how to worship. The first is this. Come. Come. Come and gather with God's people to worship. Come. In verse 1 and verse 6, the psalmist says, come. It's a directive. It's an imperative. It's a command that God calls you to come, to gather together, to worship. There are then four invitations to let us sing. Let us make a joyful noise. Let us come into his presence. Let us bow down and worship. King David begins writing his psalm, echoing the commands of God that we are to come, regularly to come, and worship together. That Israel had been given a calendar, and a series of events by God himself. He said, look, I'm going to put in your calendar events, times, that you are to gather and travel for weeks, that you may come and worship. We saw last week that this is so vital that we come and worship because worship is counterformation. Worship forms you back into the image of God where everything else in this world from Monday through the Saturday evening is deforming you away from the image of God. Not your innate, but in who you are before him, how you feel, how you think, your priorities, your goals. And that's why the heart of this psalm in verse 6 And often the middle verse, the heart of a psalm, and the main thrust of a psalm is found in its middle verse. And in verse 6, it's, come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Almost as if throughout the week, we are called by other gods to come and bow down. Bow down to materialism. Bow down to consumerism. Bow down to worshiping leisure, pleasure, treasure. Bow down to worshiping image and what people think of us. And yet in the heart of this come imperative, this command is to come and recalibrate your life around worshiping the true God. Come and bow down before the Lord, our maker. Worship is counterformation. But it begins that we actually have to come. We actually have to gather. James K.A. Smith wrote this. He said, Christian worship 
is one of the primary arenas in which we participate in the practices that shape who we are. If our worship simply mimics the, dis the disciplinary practices and goals of a consumer culture, we will not be formed otherwise. Conceiving of the church as a disciplinary society, as in a discipling one, aimed at forming human beings to reflect the image of Christ, we will offer an alternative society to the hollow formations of late modern culture. I don't know about you, but I come into church on Sundays with all sorts of deformed and out of whack thinking because I've been I bought into the idols of our city, of I must be this, I must be that, I must be more popular, must be, more, must be funnier, must be thinner, or whatever it may be, must be more successful. And not all of those things are bad, but they're not God things. Though we are not to worship at the throne, but we are to worship only at the throne of Jesus Christ. In him we find rest, in him our life makes sense. But it starts, as the psalmist says, which is, come. You can't do this at home. That we are called to be people who gather together. God knew what he was doing when he said to Israel, I'm going to put these in the calendar. Because if I don't put them in the calendar, you may not come along. We are a people who are called to gather and come. Now I know, as well as you do, that there are so many things in the way of coming and gathering. Pre-COVID, I think the statistics were, people would attend church, and these are committed Christians, people would attend church on average one to two weeks a month. About 1.4 is the actual statistic. And I get it. And, you know, I grew up in a church which I'd never want to be that pastor. You know those pastors who kind of berate people and shame people for not coming to church? It's like some duty? No, 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 no. No, 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 this is just a shepherd's heart talking of, I recognize in my own life that if I don't gather on a regular basis, I get out of whack really quickly. I get bent out of shape, and I start orienting myself towards the wrong gods. And I start to grow cold. And I start to think, you know, I don't need this, but I recognize, I wake up one day and go, oh, my heart is far from God. And God knew that, so he said in this psalm twice, come, you've got to come. Now, that was pre-COVID, Holy smokes, what about now, post-COVID? You know, I think our church has shrunk by about two-thirds in attendance on Sunday. Now, I get it, there's lots of reasons for that, uh, one of which is Nashville and Austin. You know, they're, you know, <laughs> the meccas of America right now. People are leaving. And I get it, some people, and hi, if you're in Nashville or Austin. Um, I get it, because sometimes that's forced upon us economically and vocationally, and that's fine. Um, sometimes it's because we're at home now watching online, we love you guys, and that's because medically we can't be around people right now and we need to be super cautious if you've got, uh, uh, if you're compromised in that way and I get it and we love you and we can't wait to be together again. Uh, sometimes it's actually in COVID we've seen lots of people who were kind of just hanging on going to church before COVID and COVID kind of reminded them that, you know, well, I don't have to go to church, I'm not allowed to go to church and they got used to that for about a year and a half. And then they kind of realized and it accelerated their own view of, I'm not too sure I believe this. And so it accelerated what we call sociologists and theologians called deconstruction. It accelerated it. Of, I, don't, I don't really want to go anymore. And then some are online thinking, oh, I really should go back. There's no reason. But I'm in bed with my hot chocolate and this is awesome. 
and I love you if that's you. Hello. I wish I was there with you. Well, not quite, but you know what I mean. <laughs> I, I, you know. So there's lots of, and I don't know the future of online church. I really don't know. We're online and we're online forever, but I don't know what the future is. And people have lots of different theories. But what I do know is there's nothing like the gathering of our church family in worshiping Jesus together. And that may have new and innovative ways nowadays. But whatever it is, the psalmist is calling us to come because we are being reshaped away from Jesus until we come and gather with his people. John Tyson puts it this way. He says, when you gather in Jesus' name, no matter how large or small the assembly, you are bearing witness before the powers that be that you cannot be bought. Your heart will remain steadfast, your resistance potent, and your vision glorious. Repentance and worship become your rhythm, and idols are resisted and replaced Tiny outposts of worship can defy principalities, reconcile communities, transform history. God is at war for the love of your heart. Let me say that again. God is at war for the love of your heart. Do you see that as the motivation behind him saying, come? It's not a God who's desperate for someone to stroke his ego. It's a God who's desperate for you. May your worship resist idolatry. And that's why John adds this. He says, we cannot therefore let busy schedules, kids' sporting events, vacations, holidays, and personal preferences take priority over our call to worship. If we are not careful without meaning to, we will give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. This means we become more shaped by the rhythms of the culture than the gospel, and our hearts are prone to wander. How many of you resonate with that like me do, like I do, like me, like I I resonate with that. And I recognize the pull of our society to get so busy with leisure, pleasure, and treasure that I just go, oh man, I didn't have time to go worship this month. And actually, it's a sociological and historical fact that some of the great revivals in history are not in wealthy communities. Do you know why? Because the wealthy were traveling. The wealthy were at the beach house. The wealthy were enjoying visiting all their friends and relatives around the world. And I, I'm not one of those pastors. I'm really not, because I get it. About kids sporting, it's tough. I get it, I've got kids, I know, it's tough. And so our kids play sports sometimes on Sundays, I get it. And you've got friends to travel. We're mo- very transient, so I need to go visit my mother in England. You know? So I get it, uh, this is not a guilt trip at all. This is just a pastor talking with fellow travelers and followers of Jesus going, but we've got to prioritize gathering. We've got to be a resistant community to the forces of this culture, and we're going to gather around our King Jesus and worship him. So I, you've got unique ways of working that out, but let that be your heart, because that's what God's heart is for you, to come and let us worship. Okay, so you, we gather together, and we come, and we come through the doors The next thing I want to show is that the psalmist in 95 says, come and then look. Look. Look at God. Because as you look at him, worship is the automatic 
response. Worship is never contrived, it's never a duty. Worship is a response to revelation. In Psalm 95, we see he punctuates all the commands to worship with reasons why. He says, for the Lord is the great God, for he is our maker, for we are the people of his pasture. And our hearts are constricted in worship because our eyesight, our view of God is also constricted. And when we come into worship, the first thing we do is to remind ourselves and look again who God is and what he's done. That's why songs, when we begin worship, we want songs to remind us of how great he is, that are rich in describing who he is and what he's done, so that we look. See, we know in life, generally, worship is always a response to revelation. Let's just do a little bit, little bit an exercise now. So close your eyes and think of a little Labrador puppy. Ah, do you hear the groans of worship? Oh, okay, you can open your mind. You're enjoying that more than the sermon. Open your eyes. But do you see, what you visualize causes an emotional response. We always worship what we see. I remember going to the Grand Canyon. My wife and I went, and we went to the South Rim. We got up super early one morning, went to the rim of the South, canyon, south Rim, the canyon, sat down, and then as the sun rose, it just took my breath away. I went, Wow! I remember going through the tunnel into the Yosemite Valley. Have you ever done that? Stopping at the little valley view at the, as soon as you go through the tunnel. I remember crying. This is unbelievable. I remember the first time I had sidecar donuts. <laughs> and I just wept in the corner. You know, worship is always a response to revelation. And in worship, we come and we remind ourselves. That's what songwriters and lyrics and musicians and composers are trying to do. Put God on display. Shine the spotlight on God. That worship is a natural response. I don't know about you, but sometimes I listen to that and go, yeah, of course, I'm singing these songs, but I'm not responding how this person is. You know, this responding is weeping, crying on the floor, lost in wonder, and I'm just kind of singing the song. Have you ever found that? I'm not moved like they are. Well, there's a spiritual reason for that. It's because in the Bible, we are told that we have two sets of eyes. The eyes of our mind, where we know truth, where we can sing truth, but that we conceptually understand who God is and what he's done. But that rarely moves our hearts. You know, I can, as Jonathan Edwards says, I can know honey is sweet, but I don't get excited until I taste it. That's why Paul says in Ephesians, you've got two sets of eyes. He says you've got the eyes of your mind, but then you've also got the eyes of your heart. I'm not making this up. In Ephesians 1, and it's on the screen here, he says in verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, that you may know the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. He's describing the work of the Holy Spirit in chapter one, and he's saying this is what the Holy Spirit does. He's there not to only open your eyes of your mind, but also the eyes of your heart. And I've been in times of worship where I don't think this, but theologically what is going on is, wow, this person's eyes of their heart have been opened. I'm still worshipping with the eyes of my head. Which is great, by the way. 
Because sometimes I don't feel anything, but I know he is God and I'm going to worship him. But every now and again, the Holy Spirit will respond to our hunger, will respond to our prayers, and he'll open the eyes of our hearts to what we're singing. And it's a different level of response. I remember when this first happened to me. I grew up in a school that went to chapel every day, and we sang songs, these great rich hymns. It was like bullets off a rock, didn't do a thing for me. And then went to church, and it was like, yeah, fine. I remember one Sunday, and we were like a contemporary charismatic church. We didn't really sing many hymns until one Sunday. We sang When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. And we got to the last verse, and it was then it felt like the eyes of my heart were opened. And I saw Jesus on the cross for me. It felt like I was kneeling at the foot of the cross. And I felt what he'd done for me. And I knew, I knew his love in a new way. And that began this abandonment of worship because the eyes of my heart were enlightened. And so the next time you're around people and you think, man, I'm just not like them. It's like, well, take that as an opportunity to pray, Holy Spirit, open the eyes of my heart. Now that's a continual journey for me. Because guess what? There's always another truth for the Holy Spirit to open your heart to. And so I'm on a journey all the time. Holy Spirit, Help me see, as Paul prayed, help me see with my heart. So when we come into worship, look, look at the lyrics. Visualize them like you visualize the puppy. This is what I do. I don't just sing, I visualize what's going on. I try and enter in. So I'm not just singing with my mouth, I'm singing with my mind, I'm entering in. And then I say, Holy Spirit, let this be real to me in a fresh way. Let the eyes of my heart be enlightened. Okay, thirdly, move. Move. Worship, according to the psalmist, is an embodied act. Worship is an embodied act. He says, come, let us bow down in worship. And literally in Hebrew, it's bow down in deep bowing down. He says, let us kneel before the Lord our maker. Let us shout aloud. Worship to the psalmist is an embodied act. In fact, do you know that all the words for worship in the Old Testament are not like worship. They're physical verbs. So in Hebrew, it's never worship with singing. It's just, let us make a joyful noise. It's never worship by bowing. It's just, let us bow. We've added the word worship in there. Because in the Old Testament, worship was just to be physical. Was to embody what you want to do in your mind, body, soul, and strength. Worship is physical. So you have yada in the Old Testament, which is to extend your hand. Barak, to kneel down. Tada is to extend the hand in adoration. Shadak is to address in a loud tone. Halal is to celebrate like you're a crazy guy. Zamar is to worship with instruments. Tehillah is to worship along with instruments. Worship is an embodied act. This is what biblical worship is. Glenn Packiam writes this. He says, I am not a spirit who has a soul and who lives in a body, despite the evangelical chant I grew up rehearsing in church. 
Now this is, just time out a minute, this is really important. You're not a spirit being in a just fleshly body, in a temporary home. That's actually an historical heresy called Gnosticism, where they felt Jesus was just a body and the spirit of Jesus infused a body. But then when he died, the spirit went away. All sorts of problems are linked with that heresy. Jesus, you know, left the empty tomb and he, was, he left the empty tomb. His body left the empty tomb. He had a restored body. The tomb was empty. He didn't get a brand new body, but restored the old one. Because in Genesis 1, before the fall, we are embodied spirits. And this is just as important. People could recognize Jesus in his resurrection body. And it therefore means that when we worship, it's actually a really odd thing to divorce our physical movement from what our soul is doing. It's a very unspiritual dichotomy just to worship with our souls and think, well, it doesn't matter. I don't have to do anything with my body. It's why in every relationship, it feels weird if you don't have bodily interaction with someone, right? What I love about Americans is you're, and I'm one now too, which is awesome, but you guys move a lot. You guys actually get physical a lot in your relationships. Like, turn to your neighbor now and do something no Brit has ever done. Turn to your neighbor and high five. High five someone next to you. Amazing. So you just did something. You just did something unique, because actually no British person even knows how to high five. You ask a British person how to high five, and it all goes wrong because they don't know what to do. They all like start over here, and it's a big swoosh. Then they miss each other, and they hit here or hit here. I coach people, I coach expats on how to, how to high five. You know, literally, is don't move your elbow and they tap like that. It's just like, whoa, I'm so glad you told me. But we move, right? Everything to do in your relationship is connecting with people through heart, voice, and body. Imagine if you said to your wife, look, you know, honey, I love you. I just don't, I need to be authentic. I don't, want, I don't want to manipulate anything. So I just want you to hear that I love you. I don't think it's necessary that we touch. Ever. <laughs> like your wife we go, thank the Lord. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> no, but physicality is a part of connecting. Physicality, Jesus took on flesh. When we're resurrected, we have flesh. And in fact, God created the ultimate experience of emotional connectivity in a marital relationship is sex. The ultimate connectivity is when, at your, when you are at your most intimate physically. That's how much physicality and who we are and our spirit being and our soul is all connected. That's why the Hebrew words for worship are just physical words. And guess what? There is no Hebrew word for standing up in a row and singing as if you're a statue. There's no Hebrew word for that. And yet that's what we do. And I think God just must look at us and go, Jesus, what what are they doing? What are they doing? It's like it's cool not to move. I don't get it. Because actually, it's, physicality does two things. Physicality in worship, first of all, releases more worship. 
It releases more worship. It's kind of like the dam is being broken open. It releases more worship. There's a Brit, I can stifle my emotions, and guess what? It stifles all kind of emotions and feelings. But when you're physical, it gives freedom for more of it to flood out. It's like when you hug someone. Have you noticed this? When you hug someone and linger in that hug, if you're in an appropriate relationship, when you linger and hug, that through the act of hugging, it's sociologically true and psychologically true, your emotions start to release 10, 15 seconds into it. It's because physicality releases the emotions. And when I'm on my knees surrendering to God, it releases as I'm there in that posture. The posture helps open up the river of my connectivity to Jesus. We need to be emotional. But in order to be emotional and authentic, we need to be physical to allow that to happen. So in worship, let me give you some things that you can do physically. You can kneel. Kneeling sometimes in response to or to help redirect my worship to Jesus. You know, I'm going to kneel because I just feel I'm in his presence. Or I'm going to kneel because, you know what, I walked in the room and I know that I need to surrender to Jesus. And in surrendering, I kneel and it cultivates an authentic expression of worship. I'm going to raise my hands. How many of you are hand raisers in church? Amazing. Look, see, see, it's so funny. Someone like this. That's my style, bro. Someone guy at the back. Yeah, that's me. <laughs> now, hand raising at church, there's multiple reasons why the Bible does that. It's all over the Bible, the raising of hands, right? Because it helps you express your relationship with God. Sometimes I raise my hands like this. I surrender. It's like someone, you always give, hands up, someone behind you with a gun, hands in the air. I surrender. I give up. Sometimes I do that to Jesus. I give up, man. I need you. I just give up. Sometimes it's like this, I'm offering to you my cares and my worries, and there's that physical gesture, Jesus, I, I offer this to you. Sometimes it's adoration. You know, it's just, oh, you're amazing. Like at the top of the Grand Canyon, oh my word, look at this. Right? But it's the physicality that triggers the emotions and helps you respond. And it cultivates authentic worship. Now some people are going, but hang on, hang on, gear. I don't want to be anything but authentic. And I don't want to be manipulated, nor do I want to be unauthentic to my feelings. I'm not going to, I want to be in tune. So if my heart goes to a place where it's in rampant adoration of Jesus, I'll raise my hands. But until then, it'll be inauthentic. That sounds true, but it's nonsense. I'll tell you why. We never do that with any other aspect of our life. We don't wait for our feelings to tell us to do something before we do it, if we're going to be a healthy person. I rarely feel like going to the gym. <laughs> I rarely feel that way, but I know I need to. I often feel like crushing a dozen sidecar donuts, but I know I can't do that. I shouldn't do that. I try not to do that. But you know, we have to be authentic. The Bible says be authentic, but be authentic to your convictions, your worldview, and your beliefs. Your feelings are a terrible master, and they are in worship too. They will keep you caged. And actually, you think, I'm going to wait for these feelings to come before I do it. 
well, actually, do you know actually being physical is the trigger for their feelings to start? So it's kind of like catch-22. We are called, the Bible says, come before him, bow before him, kneel before him, raise your arms before him. Let us sing and make great noises to the Lord. That's why, have you noticed our church here is built in a certain way? See this carpet down here? It's not because we ran out of wood. It's so that you can actually be comfortable lying on the ground totally prostrate before the Lord. Or you can kneel, right? We try and get the volume at just the right level. Everyone feels it's too loud or too soft. But we have it at the level so you're not consciously thinking of your own voice too much, but you can hear still the congregation around you, right? We bought seats that weren't like this. Your elbow room to do this. You got corridors to do this, right? Seriously, if we want to be biblical in our worship, these pews and rows don't help. They really don't. And it's time the people of God started to worship King Jesus. And therefore, get physical. In the words of Olivia Newton-John, let's get physical. <laughs> now that's, I don't think she meant it this way. But let's get physical, right? Now, many of you are thinking, that sounds theologically true. I could do that, but I'm not going to do that because, you know what? I will just look too uncool. We live where our God is our image in this city and how we look to others. And that's what, exactly what Psalm 95 is trying to kill. Come and kneel before God, your maker. He is the king of all gods. And actually the biggest inhibitor to you worshiping God and enjoying God and entering his presence is going to be that you're worshiping what people think about you. I still remember the day, the day I decided I'm going to actually be expressive in worship and I can't, I'm just not going to worship anymore what people think of me. It felt like being born again. It was odd to begin with. It felt like... <laughs> you know? Or... Whatever. It took like 10 seconds, I'm there going, I look weird, I look weird, I look weird, I look weird. And this battle in my mind, battle in my mind, and I think it's the enemy going, you look weird, you look weird. And then eventually I thought, no, King Jesus is who I'm here to worship, not what other people think of me. And I just, that was the day. That began the journey of worship for me, biblical worship. And I want to encourage you, Maybe that's today for you. The first thing you can do is lose your reputation and only care about the audience of one. Then finally, the final thing this psalmist calls us to do is respond. Respond. Have you seen that this psalm takes a bit of a weird turn it's like, come before the Lord, he's awesome, he's awesome. Then verse 7, but don't harden your hearts. And then there's this grim story of people who drew close to the presence of God but didn't obey and it didn't go well. And this psalmist is telling us that worship and obedience go hand in hand. Because think about it, in the context of worship, we are coming into his presence and in the context of intimacy, he speaks to us. Words of encouragement, words of affirmation, words of intimacy, but also words of like, as a dad to a kid going, you know what, you should maybe not do that. 
without words of instruction. It's in the times of worship where I'm vulnerable to him, surrendering my life to him, that the Holy Spirit brings to my mind things where I go, oh, yeah, Jesus, I'm sorry for that. Or, oh, man, I should forgive that person. Oh, man, I should say sorry to that person. Or someone comes to mind and I go, oh, yeah, I should go and encourage that person. This is the interaction of God and his people. He always comes to us and communicates, but also speaks to us. So that when we leave, we're on mission. When my God has drawn me close, and I must there, must therefore with renewed passion follow him in all things in my life. I wonder what he's going to speak to you this morning. I wonder what he's going to encourage you with or provoke you with. Because worship is that encounter when the psalmist says, don't harden your heart but listen to his voice. So we're going to worship. I don't know where you're at. Maybe you you worship with abandon. Well, set the lead and worship with abandon. Model what it's like not to care about how you look. Maybe you're like me. You're emotionally stunted because you were raised in a culture that you weren't allowed to be emotional. Well, maybe start by getting physical. You know what? I'm going to do this to help me just start to break down those barriers of having it all together. Maybe I'm going to kneel. Maybe you're like, man, I see people enjoy worship, but I don't connect with what's going on. Well, pray, Holy Spirit, open my eyes, the eyes of my heart, that I too may see what people see. But however and wherever you are, come, let us worship the Lord.